It's Tuesday. You know what that means. It's time for the best and brightest moment of your week. It's time for that show you love and that show that you seek. It's time for nonsense. 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 The show. The best damn show you know. The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Under 17, not admitted without parents. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nonsense This Show. This is episode 218 of Nonsense This Show, season 2, episode 18. It's Tuesday night. I'm Captain Nick. This is Bonnie Tyler. We're looking for a hero. Listen, you guys, the world's a little crazy. The world's a little stressful. Everything's topsy-turvy. And when things look dire, there's sure to be a hero riding in to save the day. Isn't that right, Bonnie? Take it away. than life. Oh, thank you, Miss Bonnie. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, starting things off with a bang tonight. Some of you may know that song from when it topped the charts, and some of you may know it from when it uh, finished out Shrek 2. Um, okay, Miss Tyler, thank you so much. We're going to go ahead and just move on with the show, if that's all right. Miss Tyler, if we could just, I'm sorry, I just, I know you're kind of like into this, but fine, a couple more minutes, just go ahead. Okay. Okay. I know we. You need a hero. Call fucking Superman. We're done. Thank you. Okay. Wow. Okay. Miss Tyler's very passionate about her heroes, as I guess we all should be. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nonsense the Show. My name is Captain Nick. Um, as always, I will be your host. I will be your tour guide through the world of nonsense and silliness. And uh, as the official self-proclaimed heir apparent to one Emperor Norton the First. Uh, uh, <clears throat> Emperor of these United States and protector of Mexico, um, as his heir apparent, um, Emperor Nicholas the First, Emperor of the United States, protector of Mexico. I would like to uh, issue an official decree. <clears throat> if you will pardon me while I bring up my official decree, which is hiding from me in my official cell phone. Nope, there it is. Okay, boom. <clears throat> I, Nicholas I, Emperor of these United States and Protector of Mexico, hereby appoint myself the Minister of Nonsense and Reason in those territories. My duties henceforth will be to develop and implement nonsensical or highly reasonable programs to enhance uh, the daily lives of American citizens. The Ministry of Nonsense will be responsible for adjudicating all disputes or questions of nonsense or reason anywhere within American territories. Um, <clears throat> so, as of this moment forward, if you ever have a dispute or a question or a, or a concern or, or just a, a, a wonderment involving anything nonsensical or reasonable, questions answered, uh, mysteries solved, and so on and so forth, 
you are now hereby instructed by imperial decree to write to me, Captain Nick, uh, at beardandbones, gmail.com. <laughs> that was a long-winded way to say write to me, please. I'm lonely. Uh, nonsense the show. What are we going to talk about tonight? Tonight, we're going to have another entry in the Captain's Film Institute. I know I promised you Point Break. I watched Point Break. I prepared notes for Point Break. And then today, I uh, decided to pull a fucking uh, 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 switch on it. A little switcheroo, a little switch de switch, a little do see do, a little square dance, turn around, jump down, touch your butt. Um, and uh, instead, we're going to do 21 Jump Street. Channing Tatum, Jonah Hill, Rob Riggle, and my favorite, Mr. Ice Cube. Uh, we're going to go ahead and talk about 21 Jump Street and why it's incredible <clears throat> and why I love it. And it's one of my top 10, not top 10, but let's just call it top. It's one of my favorite movies when I just want to laugh. We're, I'm going to tell you guys about a really fascinating. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it religious situation um, that occurred and still to some degree does occur, but it's, it's, it's glory days are dying out, I believe. But I'm going to tell you guys about something called cargo cults, um, where they came from, what they mean, why they're interesting. I'm going to read you a passage from one of my favorite books involving cargo cults, which is where I first heard about them and kind of fell in love with them and this kind of romanticized ideal of them. And then I'm going to tell you about that book as my book review of the week. I'm going to tell you guys about a national holiday coming up by Imperial Decree. Wow, two of those in one show. Dang. I know. It's very impressive. I'm pretty stoked, too. You should be pretty freaking excited. Um, So I'm going to tell you guys all about um, Wonder Mutt Day coming up on March the 14th. I'm going to tell you a little bit about some stuff that I've been watching because that's what we do every week because there's a lot of time for that. And I'm going to tell you about a really interesting piece of the American economy. Uh, it's highly centralized in very certain uh, certain structures. It's the zoo economy. I'm going to tell you about, um, you know, how many penguins you would be able to exchange for certain types of fish. I'm going to tell you a little bit about some of the the the, the back backstage behind the scenes bartering going on between zoo directors nationwide and even worldwide to an extent, um, trading and shipping and exchanging exotic, endangered, and interesting animals. Sue Economy coming up. Tell you about the book. We're going to answer a couple of questions from the Instagram. We're going to play some music. I have a whole list of music. And originally, I was going to like try to keep to a theme of some sort. And that's just not how it ended up going. And that's fine, because it's my fucking show. Who's going to get mad at me about it? If you're mad at me about it, write to me, because then at least you're contacting me. And that makes me happy, because then we can be friends. And I just want to be friends with you. So you're going to hear a lot of music tonight because I did two shows last week. And I was realizing today that I just didn't have as much at hand to talk about as I wanted to. So I'm going to do a lot of effort. Do a lot of effort? Is that how that works? I'm going to do a bunch of work this week. Um, Gee, let me think. Fuck you. Um, sure. Oh, thanks. Um, I'm going to do a lot of work this week to try and make sure I've got good stuff to... uh, Good stuff to talk about um, on the show next week. And uh, before we get started, mail, motherfucker. what do we have in the captain's mailbag this week? Well, uh, nothing. There's nothing in the, there's nothing in the, uh... okay, come on. The trombone was fine, but the crickets? Whatever. Uh, (laughs) Nothing in the mailbag this week, so. (laughs) Excuse me for just a second. Apparently my throat's already a little dry. And so we're going to go ahead and start the show off um, with uh, a quick shout out to my beverage of the evening. Tonight, uh, I am drinking by special delivery from Paso Robles, California, the Tin City Distillery, Paso Wine Shine, my honored, glorious, and uh, excellent nacho-making amigos from the southern wine country of California. Um, what's up, home dogs? They sent me a case of Tin City Distillery's Lemonade Cocktail. That's right, guys. It's vodka lemonade, and it's absolutely incredible. First of all, it's refreshing because it's a cool, delicious lemonade drink. Second of all, you really can't taste any alcohol in it, which is always a dangerous and pleasant surprise for me, being the somewhat gluttonous uh, individual I am. (laughs) And of course, it's made with high-quality vodka, 
made by Pat and the fellas over there at Paso Wineshine. So if you're ever in the need for fine alcoholic spirits, I encourage you to check out my friends at Paso Wineshine. Tell them I sent you and tell them they should send me more vodka lemonade because this shit is the bomb.com. We're not like you. We're grown ups, motherfucker. That's right. <laughs> I didn't mean to click on that one, uh, but you know what? I'm, I'm fucking going with it. Oh, my God. I know. You're incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, I'm doing pretty freaking great. Life's awesome. (laughs) I mean, everything's going really well, right? Your balls are showing. Shut the fuck up. That's just uncalled for. You don't need to be talking about that kind of stuff. They can't see me. They can't see me. So don't, I mean, like, just throw me a freaking bone here. I'm the boss. No, 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 no. Need the info. No, I'm the boss. You're a ghost living in an old computer. I'm the boss, okay? Holy shnikes. Come on. I just... I have a very low tolerance level for stupid bullshit. Oh, really? You do? Because what I'm seeing is that you have a lot of fun putting stupid bullshit into my show while I'm trying to record an entertaining podcast for my friends. You foolish, stupid man. Okay, can I I get back to it, please? Would that be okay? Just like for a couple minutes, I would would like to to do the show. Is that fine? Drink up, me hearty Joe-ho. And there was much rejoicing. You guys ever have roommates that are a bunch of dickheads? Except instead of being people you can actually talk to and reason with, they're ghosts who live in an old computer and fuck with you only while you're recording a show. You know what sounds like a good idea before we get going? My friends the Killers are here hanging out. COVID safe, of course. They're sitting outside the window. I put a microphone out there and they wanted to play us a little bit of their hit song, Mr. Brightside. So while I go deal with the ghosts, you guys listen to the Killers. And uh, I'll drink some vodka lemonade while you guys think about going to buy it. Also, Wine Shine, Tin City Distillery. Captain Nick, love you, bye. Just can't look, it's killing me. Taking control. I fucking love this song. <clears throat> I mean, I, I know I love all the songs I play on this show because that's why I fucking play them, but I really love this song. Um, this is one of those songs, and, and I would really like to hear. This is I'm going to ask you guys specifically to write to me about this. Beardandbones at gmail.com. B E A R D. The letter N B O N E S at gmail.com. I have a few songs that when I'm driving in the car, and sometimes I got a little bit too much emotion in me, and I just want to rock out for a minute. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, it doesn't fucking matter. But this is one of those songs I will put on, and I will crank the volume up irresponsibly loud, and I will just scream my throat out. I don't know why, but this is one of those songs that just makes me feel emotions, you know? It was only a kiss. Okay, thanks, Killers. I appreciate it. So I would like you guys to send to me what songs are on your top whatever, just like sing it loud in the car songs, songs that make you feel strong emotions, songs that every time they come on, you have to turn the volume up and tell anybody else in the car to shut your damn mouth or you're walking because you're basic. And I have a tentative title for the show, so that's excellent. There's a good chance the show will be called Singing in the Car. And if it is, you'll know why. And uh, it's because of that thing that just happened. So, pretty awesome, right? What? What? No, no, no. No, no, no. 
Talking about people. No, I don't want to hear your song, Brennan. Please, Brennan. I just ignore the thing. Such a maverick. Saying we laugh. All right, well, just a just, little. I'll give you 30 seconds. Just do your thing. Just go ahead. We stand just a little too close. Really? We stand. I wish you would learn a new song. A it's just so obnoxious that this is the only fucking song you know. Maybe they're seeing something we, we don't, don't, darling. Let's give them something to talk about. Let's give them something to talk about. How about love? Love, 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 love. That was dumb, and I'm not going to do it again. Yeah. I'm going to be honest. I liked it, though. Thank you. Yes. I appreciate it. Thanks. Okay. Stop, please. Stop. Stop. All right, let's get to the damn show. We're 16 minutes in and I haven't done anything. I've been fucking around like a, mor- <laughs> like a moron. <laughs> All right, you guys, are you ready to hear a little something about... Sorry, stand by to stand by. Okay, I'm going to teach you guys a little something about zoos. You ready for this? Animal prisons. Whatever you want to call them. I have trouble at the zoo. I really like looking at animals, and I find zoos very, like, they're picturesque because they make them pretty for the people, but, man, they're so depressing for the animals. It bums me out. But that's not what this is about because zoos also do really good conservation, preservation, rehabilitation work, a lot of good things going on at zoos. So, and they're still working. There are a lot of people working to make them better, which I appreciate. Uh, there's one unusual feature of the zoo economy that makes zoos different from other businesses. Zoos don't buy or sell animals. They only trade. It seems odd to run a business, even a nonprofit, with a collection that you cannot buy or sell. All of their assets are unsellable and unbuyable. Well, they're important ones. they got property. But how do zoos get new animals to enhance their collections or get rid of animals they no longer need or want? Especially when no money can change hands. The taboo around putting a price tag on animals has historical roots. 19th century zoos relied on explorers to go to foreign lands and get animals. Zoos paid explorers like the famous Carl Hagenbeck to get the kinds of exotic animals that drew crowds. Lions and tigers and bears and such. Hagenbeck and his kind would go to brutal lengths to fulfill their, excuse me, commissions. Uh, Killing animals' parents and bringing back the baby to fill the zoo. I mean, they, they were really awful. No consideration whatsoever that these were living, breathing beings. The animal trade became associated with brutality, racism, and colonialism as white explorers would bring back animals, and sometimes people, to put on display in western zoos. And it wasn't just the people with official zoo commissions who would trap wild animals. Because zoos were putting a price tag on animals, poachers and smugglers got in on the game. That's what happens. Put a price on something, people are going to fill that price. They're going to do their best. Finally, in the 1970s, the zoo community decided it was time to take money out of the zoo business. For one thing, this would ensure that zoos weren't participating in the commodification of animals and the trade that led to slaughter and smuggling. But getting rid of prices for animals had a side benefit, too. After the passage of the 1973 Endangered Species Act, zoos and aquariums were required to file for permits before buying any endangered species. If no money changes hands, however, no permit is required. That, of course, makes the process faster and easier. These days, zoos and aquariums barter or donate animals, and the system depends on the mutual goodwill of those institutions. The Association of Zoos and Aquariums runs the Animal Exchange, an online site that's like a sharing economy platform for animals. The zoo can log on and post the animals it's willing to give up and the animals it's looking to acquire. Uh, And, of course, it's not open to the public for obvious reasons. Looking at you, Joe Exotic, you butt munch. Um, Carol Baskin, you too. Sorry, I just <laughs> I just thought about that rap somebody did about Carol Baskin. Carol Baskin, Carol Baskin, killed her husband, whacked him. Sorry, you should Google that. It's funny. Um, <laughs> this show's a mess. <laughs> Why do you listen to this? Are you enjoying this? I hope so. I appreciate you sticking with me. <laughs> So imagine this, the, 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 there is, a, there is a, a national animal exchange website. It's fucking eBay for animals. 
only open to licensed and approved people for safety purposes. So how do zoos account for the ingress and egress of plants and animals when they're doing their bookkeeping? Oh, I don't care about that. Um, blah, 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 important stuff. So a barter system has sprung up among zoos and aquariums to trade animals without using money. They even do it with species that aren't endangered because it's just a part of how zoos handle their animals now. Uh, but barter, of course, can be complicated. For example, the New England Aquarium in Boston was recently in the market for some look-down fish. I don't know what a look-down fish is. I'm going to have to look that up. I'm betting it's kind of ugly. And they knew of an aquarium in North Carolina that was willing to trade some. The folks in North Carolina wanted jellyfish and snipefish. The New England Aquarium had plenty of jellyfish, but no snipefish. Steve, this this feels like a like a like a sophomore level, you know, uh, algebra problem. <laughs> Zoo A is looking for look down fish. Zoo B wants jellyfish and snipefish. Okay. Steve Bailey, the curator of the New England Aquarium, wound up making a deal to get some snipefish from an aquarium in Japan in exchange for sending them some lumpfish. Gets a little confusing. Then he sent the snipefish and some jellyfish to North Carolina, and in exchange, he finally got his look-down fish. Another time, Bailey says, he traded 800 mackerel for a dozen puffins. You can't go out and buy puffins. So we could have been sitting on a pile of $100,000, and we would still have, to, uh, we would still have been puffinless. Puffinless feels like a word that should be in our vocabulary a lot more often. Zoos do things just a little differently. They don't want to say a panda is worth a thousand turtles or whatever, so there's no direct bartering. Um, instead, the zoo giving up the animal just gets good karma. Hey, that's a good zoo. They take care of their animals. They take care of the other zoos. They're good folk. Um, the Calgary Zoo recently decided that its uh, three Sri Lankan elephants would fare better in a warmer climate. So this is a trade that's for the animal's benefit. So the zoo started looking for a new home for the animals. Uh, they were given a new warmer home in Washington, D.C. The National Zoo paid for the transit, but the price for the elephants was zero. So um, I don't know if anybody listening works in any sort of animal preservation, rescue, zoological type of fields, but I'd be interested in knowing any more about that you would care to freaking share. All right. <clears throat> What do we got next? What do we got next? Um, let me do this real quick. There we are. Hmm. I'm going to tell you guys a little bit about a movie called 21 Jump Street. Remake of a television show from back in the 80s. When something happens in South Central Los Angeles, nothing happens. It's just another This song is not what I thought it was going to be. All right, well. <laughs> you know, sometimes I get deep into a show like this. Normally, this show is a one-take, one-shot, improv, here-we-go kind of situation. And sometimes I get deep into it, and I think, man, maybe I should stop and start again. And that's never a good sign. <laughs> that's always... <laughs> So we're going to see how this goes. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit now. We're going to have an entry into the Captain's Film Institute. I believe this is entry number six. We're going to call it entry number six. Look, I'm going to even write a number six on my piece of paper. Number six. Entry number six on the Captain's Film Institute's um, uh, uh, files of the best movies in the Captain Nick's eyes. Um, this is one of those movies that I had very low expectations of going in. Number one, before I went into this, I did not think of Channing Tatum as a comedic actor. I thought of him as a hunk. What's up, Chance? How you doing, bro? But I did not think of him as a comedic actor. I like Jonah Hill because it's super bad. Um, and it's a remake of an 80s TV show. And as we know, remakes are very rarely successful. Usually they're a bit of a letdown, in my experience. And then I watched it. And not only was it absolutely hilarious, but it leaned into all of the things that made me worried about it and it turned them into hilarious jokes. It's in on the joke. It takes all of the tropes of police TV shows and movies and media and it turns them right on their fucking head uh, while it points and laughs at them. So, um, Channing Tatum. Beefcake extraordinaire. 
but secretly also, well, not so secretly anymore, but absolutely an incredible comedic actor. And him and Jonah Hill as a partnership is, uh, is something I want to see a lot more of. I really enjoy the two of them together. I really like them in this freaking movie. Jonah Hill lost 40 pounds for this movie. Um, that was one of the first times he had lost a bunch of weight, and obviously he's doing a pretty good job keeping himself put together now, so good on you, big guy. Um, inspirational and shit. Uh, you got Rob Riggle as the coach, and uh, spoiler alert, the bad guy. Um, dun, dun, dun. Dave Franco's in it. And, of course, my man, Mr. Ice Cube. I love everything about Ice Cube. Anything Ice Cube is in, I will watch, and I will absolutely give it favorable marks just for the fact that he's in it. I'm a big fan. This movie plays to Ice Cube's strengths in a lot of really great ways. Uh, And, of course, playing a stereotypical angry black captain, and he calls it out. As soon as he walks in, he says, Oh, you might be thinking, Oh, great, it's the angry black captain. And you're right, I'm angry. And I'm black. And I work my ass off to be the captain. And it's just like right from the get-go, he lays the tone out. And he's got his angry face on the whole fucking time. Magnificent. They do a lot of quick cuts to his face. And uh, every time they do it, it makes me laugh. i got to be careful not to be drinking while he does it. Um, <laughs> very much like I did with Heavyweights, I watched the movie today and I wrote, I wrote down just pieces and, and bits that... Uh, that stood out to me for whatever reason as, as reasons I like the movie. Um, early on, there's a drug arrest. And uh, I, I will never not laugh. This is the 10-year-old in me. I will never not laugh at Channing Tatum fucking pinning this dude to the ground and forgetting his Miranda rights as he's trying to say them out loud. So he just stops and he goes, oh, you, you have the right to suck my dick, motherfucker. And then he just starts kind of like humping him. He's like riding him like a, like a, like a horse a little bit. And I have no idea why, but that immature juvenile bullshit gets me every single time. <laughs> Maybe it's because it's, it's Channing Tatum. I don't know why, but I just, I love it. I love that dude's comedy. <clears throat> um, Ron Swanson, Mr. Uh, Nick Offerman, plays uh, their original supervisor, lieutenant captain. I don't know who he was. Um, Ice Cube is the angry black captain. Okay, there's a scene early on. 21 Jump Street, their undercover headquarters, is stationed inside of a, like, abandoned Korean church. And so there's a crucifix up in front of the building, uh, you know, inside. Um, but it's not, uh, it's not the Jesus I grew up with in my church. It's a Korean Jesus, which makes a lot of sense. And at one point, right before they're starting their mission, Jonah, like, kneels down. He thinks he's by himself, and he's praying to Korean Jesus, like, hey, man, high school is really hard. I got to go undercover now, and I'm, like, really nervous about it. Channing Tatum's in the background quietly laughing and Ice Cube is in his office and he throws his window open. He leans out and he goes, Hey, stop fucking with Korean Jesus. He's busy with Korean shit. (laughs) And I, I, again, it's one of these things that I can't tell you specifically what it is about. It is the way Ice Cube says it. It's the Korean shit line. He's busy. He's an inanimate Jesus. He's not a real Jesus, but he's busy. He's doing Korean shit. Leave him the fuck alone. <laughs> I don't know. Um, the classic uh, and, and I guess everlasting one strap, two strap debate when it comes to wearing a backpack. I don't know about you guys, but when I started school, uh, middle school specifically, um, that was one of the first times I really remember being conscious of how I wore my backpack and whether it was cool. And back then, it was super, super cool to wear your backpack as low on the straps as it would go. So it would be like hanging down, bouncing off your butt while you walked. It was fucking terrible, especially when you had books in it. It was really uncomfortable. So then it was like, I'll keep the straps long, but only wear one strap. So you just got it slung over your shoulder because it's, you know, it's like the 90s and you're too cool to fucking care about anything, you know. So you just throw your book bag down or whatever. Um, so they, you know, that, that, that features heavily in... Uh, in uh, 21 Jump Street. Um, one of the best scenes in a funny movie of all times, in my opinion, is when the guys have to take, uh, holy fucking shit, the, the featured drug in the movie at school. The drug hits them. They go through all the stages. Um, there's a couple of classic lines like, fuck you, science. There's a whole Peter Pan song bit. There's a track meet where Jonah Hill like just ransacks the whole track meet and then 
makes Rob Riggle grab the baton that he's holding, but he tries to like put it near his near his his penis. And Rob Riggle says, "Don't make the baton your penis." And I, again, Rob Riggle fucking hilarious. And then they have the meeting with Rob Riggle in the hallway. It's Channing and it's it's Jonah, and they're hitting the worst part of their <laughs> of their trip. And uh, you got to Google it. Watch the movie. Find the scene. Put your tongue back in your mouth. Uh, over falsity of confidence is a problem. And uh, let's see. There's a whole car chase where every time you think there's going to be an explosion, something happens. There's a fight during a Peter Pan performance. Jonah Hill in tights flying through the air while Jonah Hill, or while Channing, or no, Jonah Hill in tights flying through the air like Peter Pan while Channing tries to grab him. Hilarious. And there's an incredible cameo by a famous movie pirate who happened to be in the original 21 Jump Street. So pay attention for that. You don't want to miss it. And uh, that's tonight's entry into the Captain's Film Institute. Oh, all right, guys. Let's just take a breather for a minute. You know, the show feels weird tonight. I have no idea how it's going. It's been 31 minutes, and uh, I don't I, I don't know. I feel insecure about the show, which is kind of strange, isn't it? So in order to help fix that, we're going to find a song that makes me happy, and we're going to listen to some of it, and I'm going to... Oh, here we go. Okay. You know, sometimes you just get a bad vibe. I've been in a rough place lately. I'm working my way out of it. Talking to a couple people. It's all good. I'm working on it. And sometimes you just need a little help. And sometimes when I need a little motivation, when I need a little help, I turn to my girl Taylor Swift. T-Swizzle. Hey, girl. What should I do when I don't feel good? You think I should take it off? Sing along if you know the words. I know I do. I'm going to mute my microphone, though. You won't be able to hear it. Here I go. Listen. Bad news, you guys. Bad news. (laughs) Okay, guys. So remember when I was just saying like a minute ago, like, hey, the show's not going great. Like, I feel like it's a little little wonky tonight. You know, sometimes you're just not on. I'm a little off. It's fine. Um, (laughs) As I was playing the song, I went to go put my phone down, and I hit the button to go to the next song. It's terrible. So I'm going to throw it back to T-Swizzle. I'm going to have a couple sips of this uh, lemonade vodka cocktail, and I'm going to try to shake it up, and then we'll get back to the show, okay? Cargo Cults Ahead, and the book review, some other cool stuff. Stand by. Lightning on my feet. And that's what they don't see. That's what they don't see. I'm dancing on my own. Okay, thanks, Taylor. I appreciate you. You know, sometimes you just gotta listen to Taylor Swift and do a little dancing and just kinda, you know, get the wiggles out. <clears throat> Alright. <laughs> Alright, Taylor, I shook it off. I'm good. I'm back to the I'm back to the grind. I'm ready to do the damn thing. So, you want... Okay, just one more time. Hey, he's gonna play, 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 play. Okay, thanks so much, Taylor Swift. You did not license that song to me because I did not ask for it. I just took it because 
Hashtag pirate. What is your major malfunction? What the fuck? I was in the middle of doing a thing and you had to come in shouting at me? Sweet mother of God, what is the holdup? Okay, you know... The ghosts are a little restless tonight. So what what can I do to get you guys to chill out so I can finish the show? What can I do for you guys? Can you just give me something? Young lady, that's the most intelligent question I've ever been asked. Do you guys see what I'm dealing with? Do you see what I'm dealing with? You, you just can't you can't you can't get any fucking thing done with these people. Hey. <laughs> nobody likes a smart mouth sinner. Okay. I'm sorry, you guys. I just don't even know what to do with these people. Do what? What? No, that's what I said. I don't know what to do. I have no idea. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Mm, Thank you. Yeah. The the next series of stories requires, let's, uh, let's just put on a tiki bar soundtrack. That seems like a good idea, doesn't it? No, I want, hmm. I want to be careful with this. I don't want to get myself into trouble. All right. Well, we're not going to worry about music because that just seems complicated. And my brain's a little wonky tonight. Oh, that's good. Because I thought we had a problem for a minute there, huh? No, thank you, Mickey from South Park. We do not have a problem. Everything's fine. I don't know why everyone thinks there's a fucking problem tonight. Just relax. I've got this. I see your legs come back. Okay. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm having too much fun with this. I'm having way too much fun. Are you guys having fun? You bet your ass. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, let's get back to it. You guys okay with that? You son of a bitch. (laughs) Shut up and start talking. Okay, all right. A long, long time ago in a land far, far away, there was a religion of sorts that sprang up on an isolated island with an isolated tribe of people whose only exposure to the modern Western world was as a result of World War II. A cargo cult is a millenarian belief system in which adherents perform rituals which they believe will cause a more technologically advanced society to deliver goods. These cults were first described in Melanesia in the wake of contact with allied military forces during the Second World War. And of course, millenarianism because everybody knows this, um, is the belief by a religious, social, or political group or movement in a coming fundamental transformation of society, after which all things will be changed. So essentially what you have is you have an isolated society who develops a belief system around the idea that a technologically advanced society, in this case either America or Japan, would be coming back soon to deliver uh, manufactured goods, things that they had never had access to. You know, uh, Manufactured clothing, electrical equipment, airplanes, uh, electricity, all of that kind of stuff. Isolated and pre-industrial island cultures that were lacking technology found soldiers uh, and supplies arriving in large numbers, often by airdrop, as if from the sky. The gods are bestowing these, these incredible gifts upon us. And they only do it when these foreigners are here. The soldiers would trade with the islanders, um, who they often worked with. Uh, After the war, the soldiers departed, and cargo cults arose, attempting to imitate the behaviors of the soldiers, thinking that this would cause the soldiers and their cargo to return. Some cult behaviors involved mimicking the day-to-day activities and dress styles of soldiers, such as performing parade ground drills with wooden or salvaged rifles. Cargo cults are marked by a number of common characteristics, including a myth dream that is a synthesis of indigenous and foreign elements, the expectation of help from the ancestors, charismatic leaders, and lastly, belief in the appearance of an abundance of goods, whatever they may be. The indigenous societies of Melanesia were typically characterized by a big man, quote-unquote, political belief system, in which individuals gained prestige through gift exchanges. I give you things that makes me... Uh, bigger in the community. Uh, that gives me a higher stature and bigger respect. The more wealth a man could distribute, the more people were, who were in his debt and the greater his renown. Uh, 
Those who were unable to reciprocate were identified as rubbish men, which was, of course, a societal mark of shame. Uh, Faced through colonialism with foreigners, with a seemingly unending supply of goods for exchange, indigenous Melanesians experienced what's what's called value dominance. That is, they were dominated by others in terms of their own, not the foreign, their own value system. So goods were the currency of their society. These foreigners all of a sudden showed up and had a never-ending supply of goods that they were able to give out and share and trade with. And so all of a sudden, it's like somebody showing up in our society today, um, you know, with a Scrooge McDuck money bin full of gold. And it's going to fuck up all of the economies worldwide to have that much value suddenly added um, with an inexhaustible supply. Does that make sense? I hope so. Um, That is, they were uh, dominated, blah, 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 and exchange with foreigners left them feeling like rubbish men. So now all of the uh, native men of the society feel like they are worthless. They don't have value because they can never match the the wealth that these, these foreigners are bringing in. Since the modern manufacturing process is unknown to them, members, leaders, and prophets of the cults maintain that the manufactured goods of non native culture have been created by spiritual means, such as through deities and ancestors. These goods are intended for the local indigenous people. Our ancestors, our gods, sent these things to us. And the foreigners have unfairly gained control of them through either malice or mistake. Thus, a characteristic feature of cargo cults is the belief that spiritual agents will, at some future time, give very much valuable cargo and desirable manufactured products to the cult members. They believe that all of the things that the... um, the foreigners, the, the military men were bringing in, were actually sent by the gods or by their ancestors as gifts to them. They believe that the foreigners were interfering in stealing those things. And so their, their belief is that sooner or later, the ancestors or the gods are going to send more. It's just a matter of waiting. Anytime now, they're going to send us more. Uh, symbols associated with Christianity and modern Western society tend to be incorporated into their rituals. For example, the use of cross-shaped grave markers. Notable examples of cargo cult activity include the setting up of mock airstrips, airports, airplanes, offices, and dining rooms, as well as the fetishization and attempted construction of Western goods, such as radios made of coconuts and straw. Believers may stage drills and marches with sticks for rifles and use military-style insignia and national insignia painted on their bodies to make them look like soldiers thereby treating the activities of Western military personnel as rituals to be performed for the purpose of attracting the cargo. So now the day-to-day activities and landing procedures and that and drill of the, of the soldiers that, that lived on the islands have become the religious rituals that are used in, in hopes of pleasing the gods or the ancestors in order to get more, more of these goods. The most widely known period of cargo cult activity occurred among the Melanesian Islanders in the years during and after World War II. A small population of indigenous peoples observed, often directly in front of their dwellings, the largest war ever fought by technologically advanced nations. The Japanese arrived first with a great deal of supplies. Later, the Allied forces followed. The vast amounts of military equipment and supplies that both sides airdropped or airlifted to their airstrips to troops on these islands meant drastic changes to the lifestyle of the islanders, many of whom had never seen outsiders before. Manufactured clothing, medicine, canned foods, tents, weapons, and other goods arrived in vast quantities for the soldiers, uh, who often shared some of it with the islanders, who were their guides and hosts. This was true of of the Japanese army as well, at least uh, initially before relations deteriorated in most regions. Um, The John Frum Cult one of the most widely reported and longest-lived, formed on the island of Tana Vanuatu. This movement started before the war and became a cargo cult afterwards. So this is something that evolved into a cargo cult. Cult members worshipped certain unspecified Americans having the name John Frum or Tom Navy, who they claimed had brought cargo to their island during World War II, and whom they identified as being the spiritual entity who would provide cargo to them in the future. So in certain circumstances, individual American soldiers became the personification of the God John from likely somebody who said, yeah, my name's John. I'm from Milwaukee. Oh, it's John from Tom from the Navy. I'm Tom Navy, right? With the end of the war, the military abandoned the air bases and stopped dropping cargo. 
In response, charismatic individuals filled the void and developed cults among remote Melanesian populations that promised to bestow on their followers deliveries of food, arms, jeeps, and etc. The cult leaders explained that the cargo would be gifts from their own ancestors or other sources, as has occurred with the outsider armies. In attempts to get cargo to fall by parachute or land in planes and ships again, islanders imitated the same practices they had seen by the military personnel. Cult behaviors usually involved mimicking day-to-day activities and dress styles of the soldiers, such as performing parade ground drills with wooden or salvaged rifles. We talked about that. Um, The islanders even carved headphones from wood and wore them while sitting in fabricated control towers. They waved the landing signals while standing on the runways. They lit signal fires and torches to light up runways and lighthouses. In a form of sympathetic magic, many built life-sized replicas of airplanes out of straw and cut new military-style landing strips out of the jungle, hoping to attract more airplanes. The cult members thought the foreigners had some special connection to the deities and ancestors of the natives, who were the only beings powerful enough to produce such riches. They just had no concept of where these things could come from, except that it's from the ancestors and the gods. Um, buh, buh, buh. Okay, now, I'm going to cut a little bit of that stuff short, because I want to read you guys a passage from one of my favorite books um, of all time, written by, by a guy you may have heard of, a guy called Jimmy Buffett. Um, this is called A Salty Piece of Land. It's about a, a, a fellow by the name of Tully Mars, who... Uh, goes through a whole series of adventures, running away from trouble and finding more of it. He becomes a fishing guide down in the Caribbean, makes a bunch of friends, um, ends up going on an adventure on a very, very old sailing ship with a very old, very incredible woman, and at one point finds himself um, reading a letter uh, from a friend of his all about uh, an experience on a mysterious island in the Pacific. And this is one of those things that when I first read it, just the romance of the whole thing really hit me, and I'm going to do my best to give you guys some of that feeling. This is where um, a little bit of music will really help, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to find the right thing, you guys. So I'm just going to go without, and that's just going to have to be how it is. So if you will please bear with me and imagine yourself reading a letter from a friend in a far-off land, telling you all about the most incredible thing he's ever seen. He's already told you about how the whole uh, whole island population spent a day doing a religious and ceremonial party procession up uh, an ancient volcano. They left early in the morning, and they didn't make it to the top until almost sunset. The climb to the top of the volcano continued for the rest of the day. Fortunately, as we gained altitude, the heat dissipated. We were rained on occasionally, but it did, not, it did not dampen the spirits of Waltham and the villagers. The energy and excitement of the climbers seemed to intensify the closer we got to the rim of the volcano. Luckily, the followers of Captain Keed, who was their particular cargo cult deity, had picked the extinct volcano as the destination for their march, but the rumbles and steam clouds that came from the sister peak Pudi, only five miles away, could be felt and seen by all of us. The final segment of the climb took us through a very thick jungle canopy. It was like being inside a wet sponge for about 30 minutes. But finally, the rim of the crater came into view. A strange object angled up towards the sky, and it obviously did not fit the surrounding landscape. Wait here, Waltham commanded as he headed up the trail. I stood in place as directed while the villagers passed me and fanned out in a semicircle along the rim and around the strange object. Prayers, chants, and wild drumbeats filled the air when Waltham motioned for me to move up the hill, up the trail. As I topped the mountain, the noisy crowd parted in front of me, and I stood motionless, staring at what I knew to be the tail section of a PBY, a World War II era plane. It didn't take more than a second to figure out that it was the remains of the plane that brought Captain Keyed to Dalvalo, the name of the island. Although the wreckage was more than 60 years old, the tail sported a fresh coat of black and white, alternating stripes. Just below the horizontal stabilizer, perfectly blocked letters formed the word Sakula. Welcome to Sakula, the villagers all said in unison. The spot with the tail section had been erected, uh, where the tail section had been erected, commanded a stunning view of the island to the west. The sun was suspended out over a stretch of the horizon and was framed between the two volcanoes. For a moment, as I stood near near the monument, I thought we had come an awfully long way to see the wreckage of an old seaplane. 
What a task it must have been to drag it up the mountain. I figured we were there to pay our respects, and some kind of ceremony would transpire at the setting of the sun. Then Waltham would make a speech, introduce me, and I would say something that hopefully the villagers would appreciate. After that, we would head back down the hill for the long walk back to Hakali. Boy, was I wrong. (laughs) The blinding light from the angle of the sun slowly melted into the ocean, and the floor of the crater became visible. The sun continued its time-tested disappearance, and when it was no longer visible, the crowd roared. I just stood there in shock at what lay below me on the floor of the crater. Carved out of the lush green foliage was a perfectly manicured grass grass runway that looked to be 3,000 feet long. Along the edges, flaming tiki torches outlined the long rectangle, and a line of guards in uniform surrounded the airfield. Near the center of the runway to the left, a bamboo control tower stood above several other small buildings. As I stared down with my mouth open, a rumble came out of the jungle. But it was not a tremor from Pooty. It was a power of a different kind. The muffled rumble of a diesel generator purred in the distance, and lights popped on like flashbulbs in the tower and the small buildings below it. A voice echoed from a set of loudspeakers that hung, hung from the tower. Testing, one, two, three. Testing, one, two, three. With that, the villagers danced their way down the path to the runway, and the party began. I walked with Waltham, and we were greeted by a strange group of aviators. They all wore headphones made out of coconut shells that were covered with wire and wooden antennas. Waltham told me these were the high priests of Keed and the keepers of Sakola. The priests each held a carved wooden replica of a tower microphone into which they chanted collectively. Cleared for takeoff. Cleared for takeoff. They split into two groups, each taking one of my arms, and then they led me to the runway. And this is the moment when I was reading this that I said, wow, this is my kind of religion. This is what I want to be involved in. I was anxious at first, but they seemed happy, not hungry. When we got to the runway, all the villagers lined up in two rows. They were making loud engine noises and flapping their arms. The priests joined in the acrobatics, but were even louder. Are you ready for takeoff? Waltham asked me. I will lead the first group. You take the second squadron. What are we doing? I asked above the hum of the human engine noise. Captain Singer, you are a pilot, aren't you? Yes. Well, we are going flying. Waltham held his arms out behind his body in a wing-like fashion. Squadron is cleared for takeoff, the voice from the PA speaker blared out. With that, the priests roared down the runway like sprinters at the Olympics. Waltham and his squadron followed the priests. Squadron two, you are cleared for takeoff, the voice echoed across the floor of the crater. I never hesitated. I ran the imaginary throttle forward, and my verbal engine roared to life. I took off. Who's to say that some of the human planes did not defy gravity? Surrounded by the places and the circumstances, I sure as hell thought I left the ground on a few occasions. Somehow we all finished our flights. I was looking up at the first stars of the night sky that were perched on the last of the orange rays of the setting sun when I noticed something else was in the sky. It was closer to us, and it was moving. The crowd on the runway saw it too. From somewhere, the chords of a guitar sounded, and soon all the flyers were looking at the object and singing in perfect English. You are cleared for landing, Captain Keed. Can you see your loyal crew? We can touch your heart and feel your speed. Dalvalo waits for you. The Mormon Tabernacle Choir never sounded any better, and as the melodic voices of the praying congregation echoed off the walls of the crater, the object took shape. I knew immediately that it was a hang glider, and the pilot maneuvering it knew his stuff. He made wide, beautiful figure eights above the runway, and as he did, Small parachutes began trailing down from the glider, and the people plucked them out of the air. One floated within my range, and I grabbed it. Attached to the parachute were pieces of beach glass, on which were painted the words, You are cleared for landing, Captain Keed. When he was through with his drop, the hang-gliding pilot banked left over the field and came around on the east side, 
he returned to the earth, stepping from the air like a ballet dancer. As he touched down, the singing stopped, and a huge cheer went up from the crowd. The whole description of this island ceremony and the location they're doing it, as the sun is setting, you've been hiking all day, you're surrounded by people happily chanting and singing and dancing and, and talking excitedly about what's to come. And you finally get there, and a performance like that sweeps you up and demands that you be a part of it. And not just a quiet part, but a, a figurehead, a formal part of it. As Waltham had predicted, the Kava Bowl got a big workout. The villagers partied like combat pilots, sang and danced all night. And then there was the food and the sex. All in all, it was some kind of an evening. Just before midnight, as I was enjoying the festivities and dancing away at the luau, Berkeley came up to me and said, It is time to go to the tower. Waltham's little army stood guard with carved bamboo machine guns and mortars, all of which sat atop sandbag bunkers at the base of the tower. As I began climbing, I noticed that the noise level at the party below me dropped a few decibels as the generator sputtered to a halt, and the revelers began to walk to the runway. They all carried torches that at first looked like big fireflies dancing in the breeze. As I climbed, I passed a gaggle of hissing pipes, valves, and several large pressure tanks. I stopped to catch my breath at the top of the tower, and when I looked down, the torches outlined the full rectangular border of the grass strip. Just reading it transports me. It takes me there. And I imagine standing in Captain Singer's spot, being guided in this incredible, unique magical religious ceremony. And he walks you to the top of this incredible bamboo tower that's modeled after a World War II era control tower. And then he says, well, congratulations, you're the Pope. Give a speech. Inspire these people. Make them feel your love. Ooh. That gives me some damn goosebumps. Um, all right. We made it an hour, you guys. Hope you enjoyed it. I'm going to play a little music. Close the show out for just a minute here. Just take a breather. Going to have a sip of my vodka lemonade. And I'm going to listen to a little band called Redbone. Come and get your love. Just gonna perk this show back up since we uh, mellowed out for a minute with that religious ceremony. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to go ahead and close this one out. It's been an odd one. I hope it's been entertaining. Hope you enjoyed yourselves. Hope the stories were good. Please write to me. Tell me about your uh, Sing It Out Loud songs. Um, I want to know all about what songs get you fired up. What songs make you feel good? What songs really make you feel like, hell yeah, motherfucker. You know? So, send them in. Beardandbones, gmail.com. Beardandbones on the Instagram. You know where to find me. You know what's what, right? Yeah. And uh, while I'm just talking here, I'm trying to just dig through my uh, <laughs> my playlist. Oh, I know what I'm going to go with. I know what I'm going to go with, y'all. Where is it? Where is it? Yeah. Yeah, it's not the one I'm going to use. I don't know. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this has been Nonsense the Show. My name is Captain Nick. Hey, Redbone, chill for a minute. Just chill, chill, chill. Thank you. My name is Captain Nick. This is Nonsense the Show. Hope you guys enjoyed it. I'm really grateful you joined me. Love you so much. Have a great night. And uh, see you next week. Same bad time, same bad channel.
Okay, let's put an end to this pathetic hoedown. Is this a happy ending or a sad ending? It's an ending. That's enough. Good night. <laughs>